You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 48. Today, our special guest is Deborah Betts, and we're discussing acupuncture in pregnancy and obstetrics. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fiona Gitchum. And today we're talking to Deborah Betts. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us today. Deborah has a background in nursing and graduated from the London College of Acupuncture in 1989. She began specifically developing and teaching acupuncture courses to midwives in 1997. And you can find out more about this at www.acupuncture.ac.nz. Her work in this area led to publication of articles on the use of acupuncture and acupressure in obstetric practice in 1999 and her book, The Essential Guide to Acupuncture in Pregnancy and Childbirth, was published in 2006 with subsequent translations into German and French. Deborah completed her PhD on the use of acupuncture in threatened miscarriage in 2014 through the University of Western Sydney and she's currently the, di- the Director of Postgraduate Programs for an online master's course through the New Zealand School of Acupuncture and Traditional Chinese Medicine. You can find out about this program at www.acupuncture.ac.nz and the full link for that will be in the show notes. Deborah is a clinical supervisor at the Hospital Antenatal Acupuncture Clinic in Wellington, New Zealand and lectures internationally on the use of acupuncture in obstetric care. Deborah practices at the Hutt Valley Hospital Antenatal Clinic. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes and we hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're really enjoying our show, we'd love it if you would rate us on iTunes. It's so great to have you with us today on the show, Deborah. You know, it's a topic that um, is very, well, I know it's of interest to a lot of practitioners, you know, the treatment of um, pregnant women um, with acupuncture. And that's obviously been an, an area of particular interest for you. Can you tell us a bit about how you got into acupuncture and in specifically um, looking at acupuncture in pregnancy? Right. Well, really, it was through becoming pregnant myself um, when I was training, which was a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, the, basically, we're taught to stay away from pregnancy and the only treatments we were to use it for were the sort of breach and nausea and induction. And, but, however, when I'd, after I'd had my first baby and had moved back to New Zealand, I was uh, pregnant again and I was just uh, meeting lots of pregnant women, as you, you know, many of your um, practitioners will know, if you're in that area, you're going to uh, play groups and uh, just in that community of pregnant women and people were asking me for help and I really just started treating and building up a practice and getting um, these you know great results that really made me enthusiastic about being involved in pregnancy 
So that was really a practical aspect of being in an environment where there were lots of pregnant women presenting with problems at the time and wanting to wanting to use acupuncture to treat them. You know, it's really interesting that there, um, you know, there is a lot of, I guess, misconceptions and, um, you know, just different understandings that people have collected over the time during their studies and, at, you know, at different times, different things are taught and, you know, at various times, you know, people have been told to stay away from pregnancy but obviously there's, um, you know, there's a whole body of research that's been done, particularly in China, um, back in back in the earlier days, and and subsequently, a lot more English language studies have been released. Um, how how much of the those kind of preconceptions about you know the dangers of treating pregnant women with acupuncture? How hard is that? Has that been to overcome over the years with you know with colleagues and so forth? For me, it was really just going back um, and going back through the idea of uh, why were people saying it was a, a problem and being certain for myself that I understood the physiology of a pregnant body, that I understood what I was intending to do with each and every point that I used. And that for me, I, I couldn't see any rationale why, it, why I shouldn't be treating pregnant women. And also very early on, I was working with midwives. Um, they were really interested in what I was doing. They were referring to me. I was, um, you know, giving little talks to them. And there was the research out there that said, uh, looking at the safety of it, which I was obviously sort of how I got into research was being able to stand up and say, yes, it is safe. This is what uh, the research says about these, what's happening in pregnancy here, and that the acupuncture groups have no more incidents of miscarriage or stillbirth or uh, problems than the um, control groups in these studies. So just really delving into the information I had it seemed quite logical that acupuncture was really useful. In terms of other people, does that answer your question? That's, that's for, so for myself, I feel you just have to have confidence that what you're doing is safe because that's transmitted to the patients and it's obviously transmitted to the people that you might be giving you know, talks or having conversations with. And I'm very clear, I hope, that if there are things that you come across that I say I do in my book or the lectures, if you don't feel safe doing them, then I'd advise you not to do them. So just to always practice in a, a area where you actually feel competent and you have a really good rationale for what you're doing and that you can defend uh, why you're using the points you're using, why you're using the treatment mode you're using. I think your book, Deborah, has empowered a lot of, a lot of acupuncturists to think that way towards treating in pregnancy. I know that I've had your book, so thank you. And it's been one of the most, probably one of the most referred to reference books on my acupuncture shelf at times. And I know that, you know, it's definitely one of the first books that many acupuncturists think of when they're looking for a resource on treating women in pregnancy with acupuncture. So, you know, I think that that message that you've come out with when you said, you know, when you started, most of the messages were that it it wasn't safe or it was um, potentially unsafe and so nobody really knew how to proceed. So I think, it, you know, the, coming out with the voice that you've brought to the topic, um, there have been a lot of people that have wanted to hear that. 
and have found that really useful. Uh, well, thank you for your kind comments. It really was, um, so again, I intended the book to be a starting point, so I'm still, you know, see it as that way. It's just, it was, uh, I was empowered to write it through my work with the midwives, and you'll see in there uh, that a lot of the case histories are very straightforward, very um, simple point combinations, and that's the coming from the midwives in practice. And what happened for me was I just became so annoyed that, um, I mean, because if those people who know me know that I'm not naturally a writer and um, it wasn't because I had great skills that I wanted to write a book. It was because I really became frustrated that midwives who were doing this six-week weekend course with me, so it was over eight months, um, but they only did six weekends and one of those weekends was an exam week, so uh, exam time. So you can imagine what you could treat or how many points you could use or what you can sort of impart in five weekends of doing acupuncture and yet these midwives were getting these results that said change their practice and they were just coming back with this really impressive feedback of what they're able to do and yet I was still coming across all these people who weren't too concerned to treat in pregnancy um, I'd get calls from women who I'd treated um, you know, at one time and they moved to another city in New Zealand and they'd rang me up and said their acupuncturist refused to treat them because they were pregnant and all the uh, the other literature that was around, the articles and things that were around kept saying, don't do this, you know, you can't treat these conditions in pregnancy. And I just knew that that wasn't uh, my experience. And so that's really why I wrote the book was, was to do that, to start off the conversation and say, this is what the midwives are using. Um, I know this is useful because I've taught it to midwives and they've used it and found it useful and to, to really grow confidence in expanding this area of practice. But I do hope it moves on because that's not the only treatments that you can do. They, these were just the ones that uh, I've found to be really useful. You know, it's a really interesting point, you know, the... Um... You know, if a, if a practitioner says, well, I'm not comfortable treating you because you're pregnant, it's, I guess it's in some ways it's probably sensible if they don't have a good understanding of, you know, what a normal pregnancy should proceed like, you know, what does pregnancy look like when it's not going as it should be. Like it is a specialised area. You know, pregnant women are very different physiologically from, from non-pregnant women. Um, but yeah, I guess that's kind of like finding that, finding that in to be able to, you know, have people get access to the knowledge that they need to be able to become competent practitioners. I guess midwives already have, you know, a lot of hands-on experience and they do have a really great understanding of the physiology of a normal pregnancy. Whereas, you know, acupuncturists, you know, we learn it at school, it's part of our curriculum, but um, you know, I know for me, even though I had treated a lot of pregnant women before I was pregnant myself and, you know, had done a lot of additional study and felt like I had a really great understanding, it's actually a very, you know, you learn a lot more about pregnancy by being pregnant yourself as well and I think just having a different understanding of it. And so I think, um, yeah, I guess just in terms of understanding that physiology, 
you know, it can be really difficult for, for practitioners to feel like they've got a really good grip on what's going on and what they should, you know, what their role should be as a practitioner. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. It's just what was happening back, um, you know, in the uh, 2000s was wasn't that people were saying, I mean, I totally agree about feeling confident in referrals and, um, you know, it's quite straightforward to say, look, I really um, don't treat a lot of pregnancy, but this is what I'd recommend you do. These practitioners were telling women that acupuncture could not be used in pregnancy, that it was mm. dangerous in pregnancy. So they were saying we're acupuncturists. Uh, they weren't offering referrals. Um, they were just saying, oh, no, no, you can't treat this condition in pregnancy. Mm. And that was quite common because they'd had a treatment with me that had been useful or um, news. It was just that sort of people were ringing me in tears and saying, look, I've got this terrible pain or vulval varicoses or back pain or, and my acupuncturist won't treat me for it or they say it's too dangerous. Um, that that was what I wanted to address. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that it was perfectly possible to treat in pregnancy for a whole range of conditions and that that was what I wanted to really give people the confidence to treat for that. Um, However, I do agree. So now what I'm I'm sure happens is that certain practitioners in areas uh, would refer on um, instead of telling women that that acupuncture was was too dangerous, you know, was too dangerous to Mm. treat. Well, especially, you know, your book has been very well, you know, it's very well researched. It's always, and it's also very widely known about as well. And so I guess you've been part of increasing that awareness. And helping to yeah, well, change that mm. that mental, <laughs> helping to change that um, yeah the paradigm. Well, yeah, I'd like it to move on. I'd like um, that because uh, if obstetric acupuncture becomes a real branch of Chinese medicine, uh, it's not going to be one or two or you know just a few ideas on what to do. Um, we don't just have one idea or one one or two textbooks or even three textbooks on treating um, shoulder injuries or back pain in Chinese medicine. So I think I would, you know, to me, the whole validation of that is that people come in and and um, produce other works and case histories and other books on how that what they do and how they treat. So it becomes a real branch of Chinese medicine. That would be that would be tremendously satisfying for me. Yeah, because, you know, the more pregnant women you see, the more <laughs> really tricky cases you're likely to come across and sometimes you're kind of left scratching your head thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do now? Um, and I guess, you know, the more people who are out there sharing their knowledge and sharing their experience and what's worked in their clinics, you know, that's that's can only be for the better of, of all of our patients and all of our practices. Yeah, and we just have so many different styles and resources to draw on in Chinese medicine. So, um, I mean, I know we call it, I'm calling it Chinese medicine, but, you know, there's a whole range of practices and, you know, with the Japanese styles and the way it's practiced in Taiwan and um, different um, styles that have come out of, of in, into Western practice, that the, the potential is just huge to adapt that to pregnancy. Because um, mm. I think they're always difficult patients. Absolutely, and there's a lot. There's just a lot of new knowledge coming out as well about um, different causes for certain conditions during pregnancy as well. Um, so, would you like to get into some of the nitty gritty about um, using acupuncture in pregnancy? 
So, well, I could talk for a long time. So what, what do you <laughs> think would be the most interesting? Well, we've got here that we're going to focus on the importance of the individual assessment so that people can really start to know what they're doing when they're doing acupuncture during pregnancy and they're not just relying on some checklist as to being told this point is good, this point is not safe, this point is good, you know, because that's going to vary from patient to patient and, and we really are practicing Chinese medicine sincerely and authentically. We're going to be taking each case on a unique basis. So maybe you can talk a little about that. Yeah, so, that, so one of the things is sometimes it seems to be that because I put down, you know, in terms of point functions, groups of points or things that were there, say, for pre-birth that the midwives had found useful and seemed to be uh, effective for different conditions, people tell me about my Pre, my protocols, which I never really intended them to be protocols. So I didn't write them as protocols. I kind of them as <laughs> these are useful points and I know that they help with ligaments or stamina or this is helps with the cervix um, because of the feedback from the midwives and, and what they found in, in, in my own practice. But it, wasn't, it was never a protocol that should be done. And um, I have tried to address that in other articles and uh, lectures. But that idea for me is that um, Chinese medicine is not about protocols and that you really do need to have that individual diagnosis. It's what makes treatment and so much so fascinating. Um, so to me, I guess there is a the couple of there's a there's a base that you can start with and you can select a couple of points because uh, they seem to be useful and they have a kind of a wide, broad uh, action, but then it should always be layered on top with an individual, you know, assessment of treatment because that's how we get the body back into triggering the responses that we want. And to me, I, I always think that that's a se an essential part of treatment is to have that individual diagnosis. And to be very clear, I mean, I like I love sticking needles, and I really like sticking needles in people. I like the feel of it. I like the <laughs> way that it, you know, it feels under your fingers, the whole piercing going through skin and muscles, and you know. We're all fans uh, here. <laughs> yeah, so there's a very there's a lovely tactile aspect to, to being able to needle, but I do feel that uh, part of how I practice is that I do have a reason for every point I use. So I have to have a good, in order to feel good about what I do, I do like to try and use as few needles as possible and have a really good reason for every needle I'm using. So the idea of having five points that you use on everybody it is um, not one that I would endorse or that I think of as being, that I would, how I would want to practice. Um, so just that idea of moving away from protocols that, you need to have, it's more complex, that you need to have um, an idea of what you're doing with every needle and why you're doing it. And of course the midwives got given three or four points because that's all, that's all they, as I said, they only had five weekends of training. So they would use three or four points as a kind of a group. But I think for acupuncturists, we should be moving, we should be quite clear about how we practice and that we take this individualized approach and that that's the strength of our practice. Mm. I have a, an example for you that I saw recently on one of the acupuncture forums and I think it's a question that is asked relatively often, um, especially with newer graduates. So I thought perhaps I'll run that one by you and it is that someone was treating someone for having a late period, trying to 
stimulate the period and then found out that uh, the reason why there was no period is because the patient is pregnant and then the patient's worried, oh, is there any way you could have damaged my pregnancy with the acupuncture that we were doing? And um, the question I saw the other day was the acupuncturist asking for advice on how to respond to that. And a lot of the responses were in line of saying, well, no, because if you're guiding the blood towards the, the womb, either to menstruate, if there's not going to be a menstruation because there's a pregnancy, then you're really just stimulating great blood flow towards the placenta, which you will be very beneficial. Um, I've, look, I've actually got a fax sheet on my website which talks about the whole that use of points like large intestine 4 and spleen 6 and spleen 10 and how it's been used in research uh, around embryo transfer. One thing I'd like to make pointers, and this is about understanding that physiology, is that um, the embryo during implantation or developing embryo actually needs a low oxygen environment to um, implant. And there are all sorts of reasons they think around that. But you just look at fertility research and they started getting much better results when they changed the growth uh, tissues area, what they were using, growth mediums that they were using when they actually started restricting oxygen in that. So I think it went from 20% to 5%. Um, and so the body's naturally set up to have a low oxygen environment. So it doesn't want a blood flow. The, the, the uterus does not want extra blood in it or being you know, shunted into the tissue around implantation. Beforehand, yes, but once implantation starts, even in the fallopian tubes, the body starts restricting, um, creating this low hypoxic environment, really, within the uterus. So I'm not, so I personally don't want to give the impression that acupuncture necessarily works by, is beneficial by increasing blood flow. What probably happens is it doesn't matter if you increase blood flow because the body is actually actively are not going to use that because it's got other mechanisms where it's creating a low oxygen environment. So to me, um, it's it's a question of not necessarily um, being harmful, but it may not have been useful. I'm not, how would I answer that question to that woman? I'll just say, look, acupuncture uh, has a whole lot of factors, there's a whole lot of um, immune things going on. We don't really even understand implantation and what makes it success successful. Um, once you're pregnant, we want to enhance that process by uh, doing treatments that will actually balance the hormones um, and support implantation. And if you're interested in coming back, this is what we would do. And for you, we would be looking at your sleep or you know, looking at what's happening with your stress levels or looking at um, you know, whatever under diagnosis that they've got. It's really, it, I think it's really interesting, you know, that um, I guess a lot of us think or assume that what we're doing when we're, you know, needling points that, um, you know, that do we even know if we're increasing blood flow in the in the pelvis? I mean, I guess well, we, points, we do. <laughs> some of the blood there is research. Points, yeah. I, I imagine well, there points is like spleen 10 and spleen 8 and things like that are going to invigorate blood and that's going to bring blood, but, you know, points like Sanjiao 4 and kidney nine and like do we know what those points do 
in terms of uh, not saying Gel four and Canina. I mean, but the the large intestine four spleen six spleen ten. There is research a lot of it's been on rats yeah. um, that does show that you know they use Dopplers and things to show that it does increase blood flow to the uterus. So yeah. uh, and local points. You know, like what you yeah. might be using for period pain stuff, because it's sitting sitting over the arteries that feed into the to the uterus. So there is research, and so in, in that, just as a summary, in that fact sheet, um, that's all sort of outlined. And women in studies where they've used that after implantation did get pregnant. So it's not that every single time you do large intestine four, it's going to act as an abortant point um, for people because. Even in control, in control groups, um, the groups that got some of those women who got those points did get pregnant. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the groups that didn't get the points, more of those got pregnant. Mm. So it comes down to best practice for us. And if your intention is to help somebody have implantation, um, the fact that you that you know of cases where uh, large intestine four and spleen six and spleen ten has been used and the woman was still pregnant because you had a different intention which was to help bring on the period and then you they discovered you discovered afterwards that the woman is pregnant to me that's not a justification for saying that it doesn't matter if you do them that in every single future woman you can just do large intestine four and spleen six and spleen ten um, and you don't have to worry about the fact that it uh, might not be the best thing to be doing. Mm. So I, that, guess the, I, I, know I guess the answer is it depends what points she used. As yes, well. and what was and what was happening? And if you have a woman with endometriosis or has a whole lot of underlying problems, it may be that the actual increase in the blood flow is a secondary aspect and reducing inflammation um, or relieving uh, pain or there's some other aspects to what we're doing mm. that um, made that an, a, a, made that an okay treatment for that woman to be having at the time. I think or the nature just overrides that and says, uh, we all know people get pregnant for all sorts of reasons at all sorts of times that aren't ideal. So <laughs> it's also the would, time just, whether or not we're talking about giving acupuncture during the actual 48 hours of implantation or whether or not we're talking about doing acupuncture in the second week of the pregnancy or um, you know the week before and and so I think that also those what would be uh, an appropriate selection of points would really change a lot between the moments of implantation versus the, the second week. Uh, well, the same physiological processes are going on underneath. So for me, I take it as any time from where you've got, you know, where you've got a possible uh, after ovulation and then you've got the uh, embryo flowing through the fallopian tubes and then you've got implantation happening. So once at the, you've got the blastocyst hatching and you've got implantation trying to occur from that, which is, you know, day 21 of the if you've ovulated on day 14, et cetera, um, then those whole, that process is up until eight weeks is pretty similar in terms of what the body's trying to do. Until the placenta is established. Well, it's until eight weeks before uh, you get certain things happening. And I don't know whether, uh, but basically you've got a special type of hemoglobin in the fetus, uh, in the developing embryo that switches over at eight weeks. Um, that's not that's actually designed to feed the baby through interactions with serum, not blood, 
and it's at about 10 weeks that the mother's blood starts percolating, coming through the uterus, uh, the the exchange mechanisms and through to the baby. So the baby, the developing baby is not really receiving maternal blood until they say about 11 weeks. Um, and so the placenta hasn't really taken over. It, it's not so much the placenta taking over as the interaction between the fluids in the uterus at the time and the and then the maternal blood. So there's this really, I mean, they still don't understand it yet, but I think fascinating com, uh, uh, development uh, for us in terms of uterine development that's been very well structured to try and protect the baby from maternal blood until it gets to a stage when all the organs are formed, where there's no more um, unfolding of chromosomes or you know, uh, action going on, and that the babies have all the organs formed, and then it needs nutrients, and then it opens up to being uh, wanting uh, to receive nutrition through the mother's blood. Mm. So I've probably got two involved mm. here. No, <laughs> that's no, really good. That's, I think it's really it's good, good for us all to hear this. Because yeah, it's great. And I think this, this information is also making me think of how important it is that when a woman does come in with a period that is late, that we always consider that pregnancy could be uh, one of the reasons and take the pulse. And if it feels like she might be pregnant, to not choose those points. And I know that's something that I usually err on the side of. I usually then choose a treatment that is going to be suitable in case she is pregnant if that's a possibility um yeah and i i just think this it's depending on 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 what's happening um i don't feel that i've ever uh could use certain points to necessarily promote a miscarriage and i'm not sure how effective that would be but it's just a case i guess of being having a thoughtful practice where you're trying to work with the body in the best possible way you know, Deborah, I remember um, a couple of years ago you presented a talk at a conference and it was on, um, I think it was on, you know, the IVF supporting um, supporting IVF outcomes or it was with women with recurrent miscarriage. It was something like that. And the control group and the points that they used in the control group just really struck me because they were all, um, I think, chosen according to a theory that they would have no effect on, you know, the kidneys and the reproduction. But there were points like Sanjao 6 and gallbladder 34 and and I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, it's just it's all Xiaoyang points and all really strongly moving points. And, and the comment that you made was that their pregnancy rate was actually 9% or something. It was much lower than, the, than what you would expect if you did nothing. Um, and so that just kind of really struck me as like, wow, you can't just use any old points and think that you're doing, you know, oh, it's my intention or, you know, and obviously 9% of these women who receive that treatment still manage to have an established pregnancy. But um, that was really, it really, um, I guess, confirmed for me that you do have to have, you know, some level of I guess awareness and um, and care for what you're doing when you're treating a pregnant woman or a woman who's potentially pregnant. Or well, yes, I'd I'd like to, it's part of uh, I'd like to think so. I mean, I think that's the skill of our practice is that we use 
um, our needles for a good reason um, and we're aware of what we're doing rather than just following a list of points that someone's given us. Um, so yes, what that study showed, there's only been two studies where they've actually looked at uh, what's happened around the time of implantation. So there's been quite a lot of fertility studies where they've looked at putting using acupuncture within an hour of putting the embryo back um, inside the uterus. But there's only been two where they looked at what actually happens if you do it two or three days later um, when you've potentially got implantation setting up and you've got all these complex um, things going on inside the uterus and uh, attachment starting to happen. And both of those um, did not show that acupuncture added any benefits to the pregnancy rates. And in fact, they were a little bit lower than if you'd left um, the, the one where they used large intestine form spring six and things was a, was not was not statistically significant. The women were better off if they just had the acupuncture at the time of embryo replacement. Um, it gave them no extra benefits and it made a bit of a headline because in fact the woman who'd had the extra acupuncture using those blood what we call blood moving points actually had a higher earlier pregnancy loss than the ones who'd been left alone. The other study that you're talking about is where they decided um, instead of doing nothing to compare acupuncture to they'd use some actual acupuncture points that they thought would do nothing as you said Xiaoyang points and what they found there was, as you said, um, that they just got less than they would have thought that you would get from a control group. So the normal controls at the time were around 23, 26% in their, at their fertility treatment at that time. And what happened in this group was it was 16%. And so what they said was, we can't rule out that acupuncture does nothing. And for me, that it may, you know, it may affect have been detrimental in that in that arm, um, and it's a question. It wasn't it wasn't proven, but it, to me, it made me think about not only the Xiao Yang points, but also just doing too much. Mm. That if you've got this complex immune process going on, this controlled aggression inside the uterus, and all these cytokines and all these sort of uh, progesterone responses and mechanisms happening maybe just going along and doing lots of acupuncture at that time that isn't helpful to the body and is kind of shunting its attention elsewhere is just not useful well, i guess that comes back to the you know even just the chinese medicine understanding well like you know what I was taught at school is that essentially acupuncture or no, essentially pregnancy is it creates a state of chi and blood stagnation in the lower jowl of the woman and that in order to support the establishment of a pregnancy you need to allow that chi and blood to kind of pull in the lower jowl and so my you know the way I was taught and the way I kind of learned was that you don't want to move you don't, you don't want to move or invigorate blood. You just kind of want to allow things to pull. And so if you're doing things in a pregnant woman, you, you want to try and have an effect on other parts of her body, but, you know, whilst that pregnancy is establishing to try and let that, let that be. And do you, I mean, do you think that that lines up with that idea of a low oxygen environment? Do you think the Chinese were onto something um, when they thought of that a thousand years ago? <laughs> um, well, I so I wasn't taught that. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> um, so, so you know, I think that comes back to lots of different ideas. 
uh, what I find the most useful way to think of it is the work um, that, I mean, Sabine Wilms translates uh, Sun Tzu Nao, and we've done some co-lecturing together. And what the, you know, what the early text said um, about when a woman wants to become pregnant, which is what we're talking about here, that first month, you know, when, when they're trying, and for them it was the first and second month because obviously they, you know, didn't have pregnancy tests. Um, that were that accurate. What they talked about was that the liver and the gallbladder are supporting the pregnancy. And so for me, I think that's a useful thing to bear in mind that because of, you know, you don't want heat, you don't want reckless blood. Um, and so you want, um, you want that whole mechanism to be functioning effectively. Um, and so I would say that you don't want to interfere with um, any of that um, you know, promoting reckless blood movement, but also that you want to keep the liver chi calm, which is a big problem for a lot of uh, fertility treatment, and that you don't need liver chi stagnation and you don't need liver heat when the uterus is trying to do an implantation. I think that was, you know, along with the idea of the liver and the gallbladder supporting the pregnancy, uh, was the idea that um, woman, the advice was about. Um, sleep and uh, having good quality sleep which comes right up to date with the most recent research talking about um, uh, sleep and cytokine inflammation and you know the, the actually the um, mechanisms uh, that are so beneficial through good quality sleep and so I think that in stress so I think they were onto something in that uh, the very early writings that were, uh, did did give women advice about pregnancy all through every month, and that was just updated by people as they moved through time. So there was some Shimao, and then there were later people giving advice about what women should be doing in pregnancy in terms of lifestyle and diet. And the first three months are very much about settling into emotionally calm, good quality sleep. And I think that's fascinating um, because. What we often see in Western medicine is women being told, it doesn't matter what you do, keep working, go on the business trips, keep going to the gym, it doesn't really matter, um, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll either get pregnant or you won't, or you'll miscarry or you won't. Mm. But in Chinese medicine, it was very much about nurturing, about trying to get that woman's body in a state of um, yeah, good quality sleep and not being not uh, being stressed. So I think that that was interesting. They were looking at that, and I don't know that that's because they were trying to be kind or nice to women. I, you know, I often say this. I think it's just, it's a come from farming background. It's that sort of thing. If you want good quality, if they wanted uh, healthy sons, they wanted to keep the woman healthy. That observational medicine, really. Hmm. Well, it, it reminds me of a, um, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but perhaps we'll find it or maybe even you know it, Deborah, where, you know, it, I think it's a it's something that comes from Chinese medicine somewhere that pregnant women should only, you know, see beautiful things and they should be read poetry and no one should deliver bad news to a pregnant woman. And that, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 yet we have pregnant women who come into our practices and they're constantly being, you know, stressed out and freaked out and scared and frightened by their medical providers. And if you don't do this, your baby could die. And it just seems so wrong that we, you know, that we create so much distress 
for pregnant women. So you're right, those, those uh, in the literature, in the historical literature, especially like in the first, you know, three months, there are uh, sort of advice about, you know, keeping women calm. And, and there it's like that they, they shouldn't look upon dwarfs or ugly people. So it's like, oh and, you <laughs> and there's also stuff that comes up around handsome servants and some later writings, which I take to be that if you're pregnant, you don't want to look at people who might have deformities. So rather than being handsome because of, you know, because they just look great, I think it's more that they're not, don't have cleft palate or club foot or, you know, that you don't surround yourself with um, this idea of things going wrong. Um, and that there has very real physiological uh, basis in terms of the hormonal responses that we have and what anxiety and what um, fear does to the hormones in a, a body and especially in pregnancy towards the end of a pregnancy when you want that oxytocin response to start coming in from 36 weeks so i i see it as very observational advice that they saw that this was you know a good thing to be doing and i think we can provide a really nice space for women to allow them to connect with their pregnancies and early pregnancy in that first three months when everyone's trying to go well i just won't get attached i won't you know, in case something goes wrong. So we can actually provide quite a nice uh, counterbalance and we can provide information about rest for people who are exhausted and we can work on um, helping women get better quality sleep in, in those early months. That can be really beneficial in terms of the, the way that their body's using those hormones or uh, you know, hormonal pathways. And then at the end, of, in the last three months, um, you know, again, you're, you're coming into this preparation for labour time, but especially in the last four weeks, the body's actually actively dripping, you know, uh, releasing oxytocin, um, endorphins responses are starting to happen. And that the idea of stress and fear can actually really interfere with that. So we can bring them in and we can create an environment where we can enhance those uh, positive hormonal responses. So mm, I think... With uh, being acupuncturists, we get to pay attention to a lot of the emotional patterns that go with conditions in clinic um, because we, we're viewing in, from that holistic perspective. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, the role of the liver and the gallbladder and just how much you can see, you know, for women who have a gallbladder attack during pregnancy, how they've been stressed for a long time before that, very, very stressed. Um, and, you know, I think you've mentioned a couple of conditions during pregnancy that we can really be quite confident in helping. And I would say one is stress and another one you mentioned you wanted to discuss was treating back pain in pregnancy and not, not shying away from being able to do that. Yeah, so thanks for bringing that. Basically, we've been talking, you know, at the moment, you know, that whole very early first few weeks of pregnancy. And I think that's a time that people feel very, obviously, have concerns about. And we've still got a lot of discussion uh, to go on around um, treatment at that time. But when a woman knows she's pregnant, um, I really do think there are beneficial things you can do with that weekly treatment based on an individual diagnosis. So I do think women miss out in that first you know, 12 weeks because sometimes people are worried because they know that miscarriage is going to happen sometimes and would they get blamed for them. So there's that confidence in that 
first uh, 12 weeks to offer woman care and support with acupuncture. And then there's the confidence at the end of the, the last month to really enhance those hormonal responses and deal with physical problems or uh, problems occurring at that time to make to lead on to a better, a more productive birth. But then in between, so those are kind of time zones to me that I'd like acupuncturists are interested in this area to feel really confident was dealing with. But then across the board, there are these conditions like back pain, which start at 14, can start at 14 weeks when the hormones come in to really uh, relax all the ligaments and the joints. So someone will start getting back and pelvic pain quite early in pregnancy. And this is something that I think um, I would like to encourage all acupuncturists, even if they don't really uh, feel that they want to specialize or not specialize so much, but become very involved in a lot of pregnancy care, is that there are things that we can do in terms of treating back pain that are quite straightforward, relate to musculoskeletal medicine, offer a tremendous amount of relief to these women and that they are just suffering really. Um, so that's one aspect to taking something um, that's a musculoskeletal problem in pregnancy that responds really well to um, our type of local distal treatments that I think um, I would like to see more acupuncturists, um, you know, treating and feeling confidence that they treat. The bottom line is that uh, physios are encouraged to treat this with acupuncture and that is because the Cochrane, which is sort of um, sort of a, seen as a high level of evidence database, um, there are several studies now that do show that acupuncture was more, uh, more useful than just um, routine care, which is the, the normal physio exercises in the belt. So the idea here is that it's been picked up and recommended as a potential uh, treatment that can be offered for back and pelvic pain in pregnancy, and that it has a high standing amongst physios to uh, encourage to use it, and that if we're not careful, they will become seen as the chief uh, providers of this care because they are claiming it as something that's within their scope of practice and what they do. So I would like to see more acupuncturists talking about what they can do with acupuncture in pregnancy and back pain and it becomes an area that we get known for um, delivering good quality treatment in. Well I guess one of the issues there too is that you know they undergo very different training most of the time than what we do and so they're their choice of points is going to be different using that kind of medical model, whether it's medical acupuncture or dry needling, that they're, you know, potentially going for points like bladder 60 and colon 4 and then and they're using them in women who aren't, you know, in their final, final days and moments of being pregnant and that you can potentially, you know, cause women to have contractions, you know, long before they need to be having contractions. Yeah, that's what concerns me about they what they what they do. What the research does is that it is quite clear that if you use these points that they like using, and they I've written to um, one of the authors of the study because when it came out and they were using large intestine four and bladder sixty on every woman and bladder thirty two if the woman had uh, pain over that area, and 
you know, she wrote back and she said, no, we're not concerned at all because we wanted to use the strongest acupuncture possible. Um, and uh, we, you know, so we didn't make any allowances for pregnancy because we don't think that the forbidden points will cause miscarriage. However, all of these studies do it from 14 weeks until about 34 to 36 at the latest. So what they're doing is they're treating women in that middle trimester or the early part of the third trimester. And what they do have, however, within those studies is that they do have women who are withdrawn or who complain as part of the adverse events that they experience contractions with the treatment. And that would be my clinical experience is that um, you're not going to necessarily cause a miscarriage if you use large intestine for once, you know, on a treatment. And if someone comes in with sinus pain or really bad migraine and they're in the middle trimester, so it's you know, they're not in a state like the early trimester where the uterus is, is fibrillating or contracting uh, to such an extent. Um, using that point is not necessarily going to trigger uh, a miscarriage. However, I have had people who've come back to me after a treatment and said that they had contractions that night. And that started to concern me a little bit because uh, what about the woman who didn't come back, who got freaked out? Um, and thought that something you know terrible might have been happening and also that um, I don't want women to be waking up at two in the morning and having some slight contractions and getting stressed out and worried so to me now if I was going to use some of those points I would want I would tell women that I think this is the best point at the time some women do get contractions following this it does not you know lead, uh, lead on to an adverse event but if you're worried you can send me a text so that you know you're sort of pre-warning them that they might get some slight contractions and what concerns me with the physio studies is that there may be women out there who get put off acupuncture um, certainly there were some in the trials that um, got withdrawn so they dropped out of a trial, which is reasonably difficult to do. Um, so, you know, that, that's not good for our clinical uh, practices to have people being scared or worried. And the big aspect here is that for back pain, you don't need to use those points to get great results. So um, it seems strange to me that, uh, that you would want to use those points when we don't need to go near them at all to get, to get good results. And, you know, back pain is such a common problem in pregnancy. You know, it's something that, um, you know, even, and you can send women home with moxa sticks. There's all kinds of things that you can do that don't involve using, those, you know, those three or any of the other points that you wouldn't want to be using in, in that stage of pregnancy. Yeah, so I, I'd use a lot of cupping. Um, and so if, the, if you're interested in following that up, there is a... Um, an article we've just produced in Midwifery Journal that looks at the Hutt Clinic and what we treat there and uh, what we're doing. And you'll see there that uh, uh, it's about 70% of the women we treat come in with back pain on that first visit, or we treat back pain on the first visit. And we've used MyMop scores to look at their, um, you know, their, their pain scales, which is a pain scale of one to six, where the woman gets to choose uh, what's worrying her and um, so it might be pain shooting down the leg or that she can't sit for more than half an hour or whatever she gets to choose the, the symptom that she wants measured and what we got there was um, close to 80% improvement which 
in a condition that usually gets worse over pregnancy, it's as, as pregnancy moves on, usually the back pain gets more intense or um, certainly doesn't usually get better. So what we've got there is a really strong indication that from the woman's point of view, because it's measuring their clinical perception of improvement, we haven't got a control group, um, we're just measuring what the woman think is happening. Uh, from a woman's perspective, they can get huge benefits out of treatment. And these are the people treating in this clinic are fourth year acupuncture students. So we're treating, you know, a lot of um, just local points, distal points, stuff that I outline in my book, a lot of cupping on the lower back. Um, and that all delivers uh, really useful results without having to use large intestine four bladder 60. Mm. Well, that's one of the um, the contraindications of cupping that I was taught initially at school at Acupuncture University was um, for cupping to not be on the abdomen or lower back of a pregnant woman but definitely once I did start to get um, maybe towards fourth year or maybe in my internship just after my final year um, where it was really obvious that that was kind of a contraindication that was given to people who just weren't experienced enough yet, but it wasn't really a serious one. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, it comes back to that idea of why, why would cupping be useful? And it's really to move the muscles and, you know, blood mm. and bring good blood flow to the muscles and relief, you know, reduce muscle um, inflammation. So I, I just... Again, it comes back to that thing of why would it be dangerous to cup a lower back? Um, mm. And so again, that was just part of that process I went through of thinking, well, why? What am I trying to do? Why would this have an adverse event? Um, and what would, you know, possibly be happening here that could in any way stimulate labour? And a lot of the things that I was told when I was training in the late seventies just didn't add up to being um, a problem in terms of stimulating uterine contractions or stimulating labour. Yeah, well, there's a lot of women who will thank you if you can get a cup around gallbladder 30 and around um, the, the lower end of the bladder channel there near the sacrum. <laughs> They'd be quite pleased. <laughs> yeah, it feels great. It helps them all that tightness in the muscles. Um, you're not really, even in Chinese medicine perspective, by doing cupping over that area, you're not really, you know, we, it's not, it's been used for a musculoskeletal reason, you know, rationale. So um, I've never really had a problem with that or found a problem with it. I'd say the only problem that I've had with back pain in terms of people getting concerned has been that if you're going to be releasing the ligaments, which is what you're trying to do, um, you know, in the pelvis and help the synthesis pubis pain, sometimes that will allow the baby to move a lot. So what you can see after treatment is women say, oh, the baby got really active and worrying that that's somehow putting them into labor. But really all, and then they'll say, oh, now the baby's gone anterior uh, when it was posterior before. But it's really, if you just, if you release, it makes sense that if you release the back, if you release the muscles, if you're releasing the ligaments um, and you're helping the pelvis realign, it allows the baby to move into a better position. So sometimes uh, practitioners get a bit worried, if, but you can say that to women. If the baby starts moving a lot after treatment, it's just because, you know, that it's con it can now move around more with all the uh, release that's happened in the pelvis from a, you know, muscle and a ligament point of view. 
And I guess that comes back to, you know, having a really good understanding of, you know, what's going on in pregnancy and what you're doing and how to just explain that to your patients as you're going along because, you know, pregnant women do have a higher a higher well a higher tendency for anxiety if they don't kind of understand what's happening and particularly in the first pregnancy um you know and then you do need to be good at being able to reassure your patients and so you know obviously being confident in in what you're doing but also being able to explain what you're doing and what the likely outcomes are yeah, and I think that the kind of working and the, the regular meetings with midwives and asking midwives for feedback about what they think, uh, you know, is, is, is happening and, and the effect of acupuncture and what they think it's useful for means that the women are getting referred by midwives. So most of the referrals come through uh, midwifery sources. So therefore, they're feeling very supportive. And if their midwives told them that it's good to have acupuncture, then they don't necessarily come in feeling anxious about the acupuncture. Yeah. So to me, it's really important that we work with uh, Western medicine practitioners um, to, um, you know, in an integrative way that has huge benefits in terms of um, understanding pregnancies from a Western medicine point of view, and also their, you know, they they just can be blown away by what we can do from something that seems quite straightforward to us. Absolutely, and I think it's also medicinal for the the pregnant woman herself to experience uh, a level of cohesive understanding between all of her care team, whoever are her selection of healthcare practitioners, that they're not completely disagreeing with each other. So that process, as you say, of being more communicative with the other practitioners and inviting them into a deeper understanding of what Chinese medicine is offering can also really only benefit the patient. And I would probably see that problem most with um, cancer patients and pregnant patients where they have just, you know, it's not unusual that they'd be having several people in their care team that are, are presenting very different information or disagreeing with, with which direction the patient should go in and it's very stressful for them. I Absolutely, and I think it's part of, um, you know, part of where we see ourselves fitting in, into the health system, which I want us to be there as, you know, care providers on a level where we are integrated and we are seen as valuable um, rather than, you know, physios or midwives have done short courses being those people. But part of that means having respect for the Western medicine um, system. And part of that means um, making sure that the woman's uh, safety and emotional safety is looked after and not making decisions or not, you know, working around things. So I'm thinking really here of induction and this whole idea of not, uh, of working with what you've got in terms of medical guidelines and what's happening rather than trying to impose what, you know, you might feel is a more natural approach or a different approach and contraindicating the Western medical, um, you know, guidelines or system. So that can be quite tricky too, manoeuvring through that in a way that, um, you can you can empower women to have some more time, for example, um, without contraindicating or contradicting what their medical caregivers have said. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, sometimes um, you know it, it can be hard if you're only meeting a woman for the first time and she's already 
you know, 41 weeks pregnant. Um, and, you know, she's already got, you know, all of her, all of the medical team kind of breathing down her throat saying, you know, when are you coming in to be induced? Um, but, you know, if you can meet with a woman earlier in her pregnancy or, you know, ideally you're treating her throughout the pregnancy and already have a really, really good established rapport, but you can kind of preempt a lot of those scenarios and just kind of, you know, discuss various, you know, various situations that might come up and, you know, the types of discussions that they can have and, you know, just empowering women with knowing that there are other options and that they can ask for, you know, they can ask for different types of discussions with their care providers that is going to give them a different outcome than just kind of being, just going with what they're told and not kind of asking, you know, is there a different way we can go about this? You know, so I've had, I had a woman who was really, oh, this is a few years ago, she was so distressed, you know, she was she was just over 40 weeks pregnant, but it was coming up to Christmas and there was a lot of pressure on her. It was really a social induction because, you know, it was coming up for Christmas time and people wanted to go on holidays and she just felt really uncomfortable at the idea that she was going to have her baby earlier than it was ready simply because of the, you know, the calendar, you know. <laughs> and, mm. um, you know, she ended up, you know, we talked about it and, um you know, about how she felt about it and what she was prepared to do and not prepared to do. And she went back, had a great chat with her obstetrician and um, and ended up, she said, look, you know, can, can I just be admitted to hospital on monitoring? You know, I don't necessarily want to be induced on a particular day. And um, she, you know, the obstetrician agreed to her going, I think, 12 or 13 days over. And then, you know, she went into labour naturally. It was a great outcome for her. But you know, there's a lot of support that needed to happen in the lead up to that for her to feel confident in being able to, you know, just have that type of uh, relationship with her other care providers and not just having that open discussion and um, feeling comfortable with someone like, you know, an acupuncturist that you've, you know, you, we, you know, we aim to develop that type of relationship, whereas it, it can be difficult for patients to feel like they have that level of relationship with an obstetrician for example yeah and you can find there's some good websites now that um, actually help women with questions so as part of what I do when people come in that last um, you know four weeks is there's a whole little sheet and you can find it on my website with websites useful sort of websites for them to go to and explore sort of um, and there are some there that help women frame questions or say this is what you can ask your obstetrician. And I think for me it's just that women, what I would you know, often get into conversations with women about is just say, go back to your, do you understand why you're being induced? And they need to, they can go back and ask why because they need to give informed consent. Mm. So sometimes they've been induced because they are, they're real medical concerns and they just haven't heard it, you know, the fluids are too low, whatever, this, this thing's happening, and uh, amniotic fluid or something. Um, but they haven't heard it because they've, you know, we all know what it's like when you're in a state of getting lots of new information. So there is a medical reason, in which case the obstetrician will say, no, look, you really do need to come in on Tuesday, you know, because we are concerned about this. But for the woman where it is a kind of a calendar event, and a kind of a, oh, well, it doesn't matter too much whether it's Tuesday or Friday. Why don't you come in on Tuesday? 
they will usually back down and say, oh, well, okay, you know, um, we'll, let's leave it for a few more times. Or they'll come to some sort of arrangement and give them two or three more days usually. If the woman um, go back and just ask, um, why am I being induced? Can you explain this to me again? So if there's a real reason, they'll hear the reason. And if the reason is, is more for the conven uh, convenience reason, uh, people will often allow them some grace time. So that's that's an approach that we can encourage women to go back. But I certainly don't want people going back and saying, my acupuncturist said, why am I being induced? I don't need to be induced because, <laughs> you know, we don't have the whole story. We're not responsible for their care. Um, I come from a neonatal background. Sometimes there are very good reasons why, uh, you know, inductions or cesarean sections are performed and I wouldn't like to have, I've got three children, they're in their 20s now, so it was a long time ago, but um, I would not like to have given birth in a society where I didn't have the option of Western medicine intervention available. So I think, you know, it's a case of uh, navigating that and empowering women to feel confident to have that conversation, as you said. And there are, you said that we do have nice tools now in terms of websites where um, women can go and read and think about it and decide what, you know, what's what they would feel comfortable doing. I think that's a funny point you make about sometimes, you know, induction is, is really, um, this is not the funny part, I'm just jumping aside, rearranging my sentence, um, but what I'm saying is sometimes the induction, you know, it's really important for the medical safety of the woman and the baby and that that's a great option that we have available, that we have these great tools for natural methods as well as for emergencies. Um, but you did mention also sometimes is the induction happening for convenience and I remember always um, the story of when I was born, I was induced and, and there were several different stories as to why it was convenient that I'd be induced on this day. And one of them was that the doctor had a golf appointment, so it had to be the day before my mother was due. But the other story is that she was due on April the 1st and there's no way that she or the doctor would allow me to be an April fool. So they induced me on the 31st of March. But <laughs> I just wish that when I was, you know, learning Chinese medicine and learning about this, I was thinking, wow, you know, that, that possibly wasn't the best decision in that circumstance. But he but everything yeah, it, okay. it all turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like being rushed into things, but they do say that about babies that have been induced. Yeah, I think my, uh, my concerns is, that we just need, there's, there's times, it's about how do we use our medicine to get the best outcomes for the mother and the baby. And some, to me, um, induction really, I don't see that I do inductions really. I do, because induction is a medical term for actually intervening and getting that baby to come. And it's quite a violent process. And mm. it's sort of very intervention process where you're doing something nature's not, wasn't going to do most likely in, in terms of if you're going to induce within 12 hours or something so to me what I'm really doing is I'm making if, 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 if a woman is going to be induced in a few like three days time what I'm doing is helping the western medicine look good so what I'm doing is trying to enhance that whole process so that either things kick off beforehand or they go to do induction, they do a very minimal intervention and everything goes wonderfully well. 
So to me, induction really is just an assisted um, intervention because the Western medicine is going to intervene, so there is no more choices. So you want to do whatever you can to get that woman's body in a state where um, whatever they do with Western medicine, it's going to work well. Mm. Does that make I sense? Think Rather than me making a decision and saying, right, we're going to get your baby coming tonight and that that's going to be the, a good thing, um, because I still think it's not a good thing. That unless there's a real uh, reason that um, I've preferred to wait as long as possible and then only do it with great reluctance because it's still an intervention. Mm. I agree and I think we could even err away from using the word induction and, and I use the term preparation for birthing. So from that I'd like to start it at around week 32 if I haven't been working with the woman previously and you know then you get time to go through all the things like the emotion, the stress, the beliefs, the physical um, and, and everything to prepare the woman for going on the journey that that nature is really mapping out um, until or unless it gets to a point where she is going to have that kind of Western medical induction. Yeah, and then again, it comes to me, it comes to that individual diagnosis because it's a very, you have women with VBACs, you have women with gestational diabetes, you have women with um, cholestasis, you have the women who are going to be induced. So it's about the sliding scale of time. When does that become preparation, which is, to me, is quite a, a, natu a, a sort of a fine tuning and enhancing process versus induction which kind of says we want that baby to you know if contraction start is on the table that's that's acceptable if they start tonight that's acceptable versus uh the preparation to me is is quite clearly you're not aiming to get that woman in to have contractions or to start labor off mm. so to me there's quite this i haven't quite seems to be quite a gray area for some people in terms of well, if somebody's going to be induced at 41 plus 5, at 41, let's just start trying to induce. Let's try and get this baby out. Or at um, even 39, let's just try and get the baby delivered naturally so that you don't have to have an induction at 40 weeks. But actually, you might, you've got a whole week there um, where that baby's really happy and the the way that labour starts naturally is triggered through the baby. It's triggered through surfactant, they think now, surfactant areas to do with their, their lungs. Um, we know from, from a Western medical perspective that three to four days before a baby's born, it reduces the amount of amniotic fluid in its lungs. So it knows it's going to have to you know, do these complex changes. And it starts preparing three or four days before a natural delivery. That's one at least in that way that we can see, there's probably many other things it's doing. So to that baby, Tuesday could be quite different from Friday if it was left alone. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's sort of, we think, oh yeah, the woman's 40 weeks now, any time is good. But actually, yeah. any three or four days could make a huge difference to that baby's getting ready. And what I see, I suppose this is my neonatal background, Babies that have a bit of trouble breathing, do a little bit of flaring, get put under observation, put up in neonates for a night, or just even observe frequently during the night, woken up, 
Um, then they get given a bit of bottle feeding and then they don't breastfeed very well. Um, so even if it's not a dramatic outcome, so that the woman comes in at 40 weeks and she's not going to be induced until 41 plus 5 and she comes in at 40 and she has her baby three days after an acupuncture treatment for induction and thinks it's wonderful and the acupuncturist gets told what's great, the contraction started that night, I went into labour, I had my baby. Um, but then the stories are not kind of so great. And I, I feel, you know, when I was doing that, which is what I was doing when I first started practicing, it's just letting the woman decide and tell me, oh, let's start induction now, um, that I wasn't very happy with the outcomes. Um, and I felt quite responsible, really, for intervening um, compared to leaving things alone as, for as long as possible. Mm. So, yeah, I've had I've the same come, experience. Yeah. Exactly, me too. I wanted to just touch on something that you mentioned and that was with gestational diabetes as being a really common reason for women being induced and they often do it at around 38 weeks. Um, mm. Often I, it, I've i seen it happen so many times that now it's actually just standard pra practice for me with my patients to discuss with them around, you know, the possibilities of being induced early and often it's just a standard thing that happens they say you've got gestational diabetes you're at risk of a big baby you're going to be induced at 38 weeks um, and and I encourage all of the women if they're not comfortable with being induced at 38 weeks and often it's just before you know babies at 38 weeks as opposed to 38 plus 5 you know more likely to have feeding problems because the feeding reflex hasn't quite come in yet um, you know, that that they can get a scan that can more accurately measure what the size of the baby is. And I've seen it happen so often that they have really small babies and that, you know, they're being told they're being induced because the risk of having, you know, a four or a five kilo baby is really high and they have these tiny little, you know, 2.7 kilo babies or a three kilo baby. Um and so I've had a lot of women have have much better experiences in the medical system just by saying, well, okay, that's great, that's what the stats say, but how does that apply to me and what is my reason for being induced and is this a valid reason for me at this time? Um, and that going down that road has led to them having um, having better outcomes. You know, it's feeding. Yeah, no, I mean... Yeah, no, I totally agree, and that's what we were talking about before, is that the woman has to understand and be part of that plan with her obstetrician. But it's interesting to me because what you may be describing is that more women have been told they've got gestational diabetes than may actually in reality have mm. according to other definitions. So you might be working in an area where, you know, there's a whole, that things change over time, and I know that they've, they've almost... Uh, expanded their criteria for what yeah. they think of as just diabetes yeah. now. So yeah. what you might be seeing is uh, a group of women who um, have been told they have gestational diabetes based on some readings that might actually not have what in, you know, five years ago would have been called gestational diabetes. Mm. Yeah, well, they just do this. Yeah, they, oh, totally, because they just do the three-hour glucose tolerance test now. And it's a it's a um, it's a standard screening for all pregnant women, um, unless they have 
you know, really good relationship um, with their obstetrician, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to refuse the test and still have access to care through their facility. Um, and so, yeah, and a lot of them come back, particularly women who who tend to have a low carbohydrate diet. You know, they eat a lot of salads, they eat a lot of vegetables, they eat a lot of, you know, fish and chicken, but they don't have a lot of fruit. They don't eat a lot of bread and, you know, they're, you know, they're not eating junk food and they kind of go in and have the equivalent of two cans of Coke <laughs> on an empty stomach yeah. and then let's see what happens to your blood sugar and, oh, look, you know, it's not so great. You must have gestational diabetes and it's just it just railroads <laughs> women into these awful scenarios and I've, yeah, it's a really, oh, I, I try not to get too involved but I just think it's a, such a silly system the way that it's happening well, here in Melbourne at bring- the moment. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point about having to work within whatever is happening there, but certainly being able to to find out what they're doing and then to be able to try and, uh, you know, maybe suggest, I mean, there are websites and stuff that you could probably suggest to some of those women to check that the measures that they are using might not be the measures used in other parts of the world, mm. if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it's because they change the policies all the time and they, they kind of do things and so it's about informing women so they can go back and have an informed conversation uh, with their obstetrician. Um, So yes, I think it's really important to find out what's happening in your area so that you can look at that. And in terms of that um, induction idea that if they are going to be induced at 38 weeks because that's uh, what, what is going to happen and they are gestational diabetics, um, there are all sorts of things you can do to work with a woman to prepare for that so that you can use things in, the, in a week leading up and get them doing acupressure homework and really focusing on breastfeeding because we know that's a problem for when these babies are born. They need the mothers to be to have access to breast milk. So you can actually design a whole, um, you know, coming in to with the purpose that you're working with their body and to have a really good induction to work really well and to have a really good recovery afterwards that um, is going to be beneficial. And the same for caesarean sections. It's about working with women who are going to have a caesarean section to make that a really positive experience and to give them a really good recovery program. So to me, induction is not always about um, getting the baby to come. You know, that the, your, your focus of your treatment might actually be uh, using the acupressure and the dietary advice and the moxibustion homework to really get good recovery going. Does that make sense? And not, it's not always always about what actually happens uh, with the needles in the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you've got, to, you've got to look at the before, during and after on all layers of, of the woman and the baby, really. You've got two patients when you're treating pregnant women. Well, almost three, because you've kind of got the, you know, the 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 partner if they're if they're involved as well, that they're affected too. Yes, I think um, it's a ever moving feast of things that we could potentially do in pregnancy, um, and I think that uh, we talked a little bit about historically and a lot of the sort of conditions that we might have been taught in college and a lot of sort of fear around treating pregnancy and one of the reasons behind that may have been 
that uh, it wasn't treated, acupuncture wasn't used in pregnancy in, uh, in China, and in fact a lot of the texts said don't use it. Uh, however, what was used was herbal medicine, because herbal medicine was the highest you know, form of medicine, so uh, herbal remedies were used in pregnancy. And acupuncture, it wasn't so much, uh, you know, it's up to us now in our Western context where people don't necessarily want to take herbs in pregnancy to explore what is possible with acupuncture. Mm. Um, and I think that's a whole new field that we haven't really uh, in any way scratched the surface of, is that there are all sorts of things that we can do and be helpful with um, that uh, 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 remain to be explored just because we don't have an historical background to draw on of how it was used. Thank you, Deborah. And also because you've really been blazing the trail in that area um, for quite a while, as we mentioned, that your book is the one that comes to mind off the top of most acupuncturist heads all around the world when they're looking at acupuncture in pregnancy. So or the quality and the choices of, of what's been done in some of the research so far for that, for me, the mind boggles with that. So I'd really love to see some more intelligently designed research as well on what the acupuncture is doing. Um, and I, I wanted to also say I loved what you were saying about just going through some of the various scenarios that we can help to educate and inform our patients on to help them get better at having the right kind of conversations with their other healthcare providers. And I was thinking maybe we would contact you again to do um, an episode in the future just on that, aimed more so perhaps at the patients than the practitioners. Uh, yeah, oh, I don't mind talking, so it's fine. So thank you for, thank you for your comments, <laughs> comments about uh, the book. And as I came, just going back to what I started from, I'd really like to encourage other people to write about their case histories, to think about um, you know sharing their clinical experiences in pregnancy because uh, the book was really just intended as a starting point and um, I would like to see it taken further and to see how different styles of acupuncture work with different things. Um, so I'm really happy to share what I found useful and because um, I've taught it to midwives and they've found useful and haven't had problems, I'm really happy to share that, that experience and, and what was happening. But I think there's a lot more out there to be discovered and a lot more value um, and different ideas of, how, of what we could treat. Yes. Thank you so much for your generosity and everything you've shared with us. And if anybody would like to interact with any of the topics that we have discussed during this episode, you can write your comments on our Facebook page or pass on any questions. Yeah, so thank you guys. And uh, yeah, I hope it didn't get too sort of bogged down in details. So, <laughs> no, it was just great. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great, great that you're doing this and allowing all these kind of conversations to happen.